Hello and welcome to season two, episode six of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm Caitlin Moran, filling in for my colleague Frank Nam today. He'll be back for our next episode. Today we're talking about the ongoing Afghan refugee crisis. It's now been six weeks since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul. On that day, and in the weeks since then, we've seen scenes of chaos, desperation, and fear that have shaken many of us to our core. My guests today were not in a position to sit idly by as these images and stories were coming from Afghanistan. They immediately sprang into action and have worked around the clock to help bring Afghan refugees to safety and to pressure the U.S. government to follow through on its promises to the Afghan people. They've also all been featured in local and national media in recent weeks, calling on the U.S. government to do better and helping to educate us all on what's happening and what's needed. We'll be sharing some of those links and other resources on the written introduction that will appear alongside this episode. So how does all of this relate to belonging, which is the the theme of this podcast? Well, we know that the refugee story is central to so many of our personal identities and who we are collectively as Americans. Many folks, especially here in the Seattle region, want to help Afghan refugees and help them find the most basic sense of belonging, food and shelter and a place to call home. But it's a complex problem that can be overwhelming for many of us. Today's conversation is about how to help, but we'll also be looking at the long game. How do we not just meet refugees' immediate needs, but also help them feel belonging and create a truly welcoming environment where they're not treated as outsiders? So before we begin, I want to thank each of our guests for taking the time and making the emotional space to be with us today. These three are in the thick of it, dealing directly with a situation that some of America has already started to tune out. So thank you for being here and thank you for continuing to do this important work. And with that, I wanna turn it over to our guests who will introduce themselves uh, in whatever way they'd like. Um, but I'd, I'd ask that you please tell us a little bit about your connection to the refugee experience and how you came to be involved in, in this work. So we'll start with Will and then Anila and then Tan. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Rabbi Will Berkovitz. I'm the CEO at Jewish Family Service in Seattle. Um, so we started our refugee resettlement work uh, about 120 years ago uh, when we were resettling Jews from around the world. Um, that continued into the Holocaust and then it continued um, with Jews from the former Soviet Union. More recently, we've shifted and now we're resettling really no Jewish people whatsoever. We're resettling Muslims, we're resettling folks from the Congo, we're resettling Christians across the planet. And we have a team of uh, an entire department now dedicated to, to resettlement. And we're currently really focusing on SIVs, which are special immigrant visa holders, people who work with coalition forces during the wars and trying to really get them out. Um, for Jews, this is, you know, we're refugee people. This goes back to our, our origin story. And so we feel um, really commanded. In fact, it says in the Torah and the Bible, um, you know, remember you were strangers in a strange land. So it is, it's really comes in the form of a command. Um, it's not just a nice thing to do for us. And so we take that very seriously. And it doesn't matter what uh, what communities we're resettling, we do it out of a sense of, of, of uh, obligation. And I think as citizens to this country, we do it out of a sense of, um, of moral obligation as well. Hello, uh, this is Anila Afzali, and I am uh, currently the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. Uh, I, I am connected to the refugee story because my family escaped as refugees of Afghanistan. I am Afghan-American. Uh, my family escaped the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan uh, when I was two years old. Uh, we lived as refugees for three years in Germany before immigrating to the United States in 1983 to join my dad's side of the family, which lived in the California Bay Area. So this is a very personal story, both because I'm a refugee, an immigrant, and I'm Afghan-American. Uh, I am also a recovering attorney. Uh, I left my legal practice uh, in 2013 after a spiritual transformation uh, that inspired me really to pursue uh, service and knowledge. Uh, and that's a context in which I joined MAPS, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, uh, 
the largest Islamic center in the state of Washington uh, and really wanting to give back. And with this uh, current crisis happening in Afghanistan and the incoming Afghan uh, refugees, uh, I thought it was an important time for me to step up and get involved. We at MAPS have had a social and humanitarian program that serves refugees of all backgrounds, including Afghan refugees. That is MCRC, the Muslim Community Resource Center. And I myself have gotten involved specifically in working with uh, the state, uh, so public and private uh, resources to talk about how we can best coordinate the efforts in Washington state to help make our state a model for the nation on how to welcome refugees the right way, uh, especially with the influx that we anticipate seeing and trying to do our part to uh, avoid duplication, maximize efficiency and effectiveness, uh, and try to provide services that are culturally competent, religiously appropriate, and linguistically uh, literate as well. Hi, my name is Tan Tan, and I'm based here in Seattle. I am an independent journalist, a filmmaker, um, and storyteller. And I am also a child of refugees. My parents fled Vietnam by boat in 1978, about three years after the fall of Saigon. And I grew up in um, the refugee community in Olympia, Washington, and saw generation after generation um, of refugees helping one another. And um, over the last, I would say, six or seven years, um, I went from being a journalist of general stories to trying to focus on the Vietnamese experience. And I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to make sense of what it means um, to, to be Vietnamese. Um, and I am involved personally because I was triggered by the images that we saw um, during the fall of Kabul and um, am very fortunate to have friends who also felt the same and wanted to activate and do something. And so we uh, formed what we now call um, the Viets for Afghans project and um, initially wanting to find hosts for temporary and emergency housing for Afghan refugees, because that's what we heard the need was. And also learning in the process that it's important for us to look back on our own experience and to leverage all of the lessons that the Vietnamese um, refugee population has learned over the last 50 or so years. And to remember that it is important to show compassion and to show empathy um, and to drive action. And I think in the last six weeks, it's been an incredible journey to um, realize how much of the emotions for our community are still very raw and how we have not yet fully processed um, what happened in 1975. But it's very important for us to not impose everything that the Vietnamese went through um, with our experience, it's important for us to not impose our experience on the Afghan community. And so we have, um, we are actively listening and trying to engage and build relationships with the resettlement agencies, understanding where the state is at um, with its work, as well as developing um, relationships with key people in the Afghan community, such as Anila. So that's what brings me to the table and um, thank you for having me and thank you for including us. If we Vietnamese can help to model allyship, I think that will, that, that to me equals success. Dan, I just want to say real quick, uh, you highlighted something that really, uh, uh, you highlighted something that struck a chord with me, and that is specifically the emotions and emotionality around this issue. Uh, one thing I didn't mention in my introduction is that I also currently have family that I'm trying to evacuate from Kabul. Uh, they are in grave danger there and going through this process and so many other Afghan Americans I know here in Washington state are currently also in this process. And the emotion, the trauma has just been, uh, it's been so, uh, uh, impactful. It's so horrible. It's just been something that we've been trying to live with and live through. Uh, and the number of emotions that I myself have experienced, the roller coaster of emotions, it is a very difficult time. And it's it means so much to me as an Afghan American to see the support and solidarity and help from different individuals, organizations, and communities like the Vietnamese American community stepping up and understanding the connection or the Jewish American community uh, doing the same. Thank you for that. And thank you everyone for sharing about your personal experience and your personal story. We really appreciate it. Um, 
that was actually a great segue to what I wanted our first question to be, which is, you know, what does effective allyship look like from from those of us who maybe aren't as directly connected to the refugee experience, but still feel a call to help and to um, step up for this community? Um, and I, I want to start with Tan on that because um, I know that that you've done some soul searching about that and and already learned quite a lot in your experience with Vietz for Afghan for Afghans. Yeah, I think um, I think that we're learning that. Um, well, we're learning a lot of things, but I actually was thinking, like in the process of doing this too, I'm looking at Will because I'm. I think we are looking at you know Jewish Family Service and what 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 that community has done um and you know i i think uh what strikes a chord with me is thinking back to when i was becoming much more aware of um the vietnamese american journey and our origin story as refugees it made me wonder why is it taken so long like vietnamese have been coming to the us and mass since 1975 and why is it that we haven't really talked about um, our refugee experience. Our parents certainly did. They lived through it. For the younger generation, we experienced it. We saw what we saw. We heard what we heard. But we didn't, I did not identify as being a child of refugees for a very long time. And um, and I think it was because my, our families and our community were trying so hard just to move forward because there is this notion that when you are a refugee and you resettle in America, that's it. This is your second shot. You better move forward. There's no time to really like look back. And I think that um, that makes me kind of sad because I wish we had, um, I, I wish our community did feel a little more that we could um, express, you know, I think the pain and the trauma of what had happened because um, intergenerational trauma, I believe is real. It gets passed down to the next generation, even if I was not the one who fled Vietnam, but I still feel it. I feel it in my bones and I feel it. Um, I just feel it in sometimes unexpected ways. And I've been super inspired by looking at um, the Jewish community and also the Japanese American community as well, because both of those communities, I realize, you know what, it takes a generation and it takes time. It takes many decades to be removed from the traumatic event. And um, I would venture to say that, you know, for a Jewish community, it, you had to be removed from the Holocaust by a certain period of time in order to really reflect on what happened. The same with our Japanese American community. And for Vietnamese Americans, we're going through something similar. And that's what makes it so when I watch what's happening to our, our Afghan friends, it is so difficult because I see, my goodness, we have been through so much as a community, so much pain and suffering. Um, that I hate the idea that it's happening in real time right now to a different community, um, you know, and how, how do we, how do we process that? And I do think that like Vietnamese Americans um, can relate to what Afghans are going on in a very strange and unique way um, because we also came from a country where there was a conflict that America got involved in, that the U S was very invested in um, that the U S um, allied with the local people. And then at some point, because of international and other geopolitical factors, the U.S. decides we're no longer interested in staying here. So peace out and see ya. And that feeling of abandonment, um, I think, is something that our communities share with each other. And so um, it's important to remember that. And, um, and I think because we have the privilege of um, having been removed from our experience, um, hopefully we can speak up and we can help to advocate for um, the Afghan community because they are deep in it. Like they are trying to live and survive and get out of Afghanistan and find safety. And so um, in a way, I don't know how else to express this other than we want to, we sort of want to leave them alone and um, let them do whatever they have to, to survive and, and do our part to try to shed light and attention and do whatever advocacy we possibly can as, um, as a community. All right. Thanks for that, Tan. And um, maybe to kick it over to Anila next, because um, Tan brought up kind of the line between wanting to help and not wanting to be a burden, wanting to be effective in in the allyship that you're trying to achieve. And 
Anila, since you're working so directly with refugees in Afghanistan, um, kind of curious your thoughts on all of that. Sure. So I uh, certainly agree with the importance of connecting with the community directly impacted. Uh, and one of the things I would say for effective allyship is really listening to and uplifting those voices that are directly impacted, because something that has been problematic throughout the, the 20 years of, of our war in Afghanistan, throughout the four decades of, of war and violence in Afghanistan um, here in our country has been the missing voices of Afghans and Afghan Americans at some of these tables at, you know, some of the policy decisions, the strategy decisions, uh, and more. And this is part of why we are in the situation we are in now. So really listening to Afghan and Afghan American voices is critical right now. I would also say educating for everybody to educate ourselves about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, uh, Tan mentioned the, the connection with other places where the U.S. has been involved, like Vietnam. There are certainly many other countries as well that we could point to. But I think a lot of people uh, may not know the, the history of U.S. invasion or in, engagement uh, and our role in Afghanistan in the four decades of war and violence there. So I think it's critical for us to understand U.S.'s role and also understanding even in the 20 years uh, that we were involved in occupying Afghanistan, uh, there have been reports coming out like the Afghanistan papers that I would highly recommend that people familiarize themselves with so they know and understand how the American people were lied to, how we were uh, in, you know, uh, pouring money into Afghanistan, but that was really lining the pockets of defense contractors, not necessarily helping the Afghan people, or it was supporting corruption and warlords rather than the people on the ground who desperately needed the, the support, the infrastructure, uh, and the, the possibility of, of hope as well. Um, having said that, uh, another important point that I think people uh, really should understand is how much the Taliban is foreign in terms of their practices to the people of Afghanistan, specifically in areas like Kabul. Uh, my family lives there, and this is this is seen as a foreign force coming in and taking over and imposing their brutality, their repression. And no matter what religion they claim, it is not aligned with those uh, uh, religious teachings. Uh, and one important point that I've been making to folks, especially those who want to stand as allies, is to make sure you do not conflate what the Taliban or any other uh, groups like that are doing with Islam or with Sharia. And again, regardless of what they may say themselves, uh, the same way that we would never point to the KKK or the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, no matter how much they may claim Christianity, we would not point to them as examples of Christianity. So I think that's an important point as well. Uh, and also with allyship, the importance of making sure we combat Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiment and xenophobia or anti sort of immigrant sentiment uh, that is inevitably going to grow. Right now, we're seeing a, a strong showing of bipartisan support for welcoming and helping the incoming Afghan refugees, but we're already seeing the hateful messages. Groups like Proud Boys having an Afghan hunting permit, for example, that they were spreading uh, that's really horrifying, or white supremacist groups celebrating the victory of the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. These are things that we need to be aware of and really collectively work on uh, a, a narrative of inclusion, a narrative of welcoming, a narrative of exactly what this podcast is about, you know, that we belong. Uh, that is really critical and important for folks to do. Um, there's also, of course, the, the cultural competency piece in general, uh, understanding sort of some of the, the cultural differences of the incoming Afghan families uh, and, and making sure that we do center Afghans and Afghan Americans in the provision of services or the work that's being done with Afghan refugees so that there is that cultural or religious connection uh, to make the services uh, most appropriate for them. Um, I have a lot more that folks can do and specific ways of action, uh, and I can talk about those now or wait and talk about them later. But let's wait and, and talk about them later. And, and again, like I said, would love to include any links to resources that you'd like to share so that folks listening um, can can check those out after the podcast as well. Um, but thank you for those details and for reminding us that, you know, this is a, an educational journey as much as it is donating money and, and, and you know, at, at one point in time, it's something that we have to keep doing for the long haul going forward. Um, Want to kick it over to Will and, and ask for you to 
chime in any thoughts you have on on what Anila and Tan said or anything else about effective allyship? Sure. So um, one thing that Tan had said I think is really um, compelling is, um, so we ritualized it. I mean, in terms of how the Jewish community addressed, you know, from there's a holiday called Passover where every every year we tell the story and we turn that story into not, oh, oh woe is us, but it's a story of... Um, um, resilience and a story of responsibility toward toward others, and that's how we, as a Jewish community, have done that. So, you know, the I just read somewhere recently. I actually wrote it down because I thought it was so just powerful. The, the meaning of Jewish history is that history has meaning, but it's on us to make the meaning out of that story. Um, and you can turn that into and and you know, you can't judge anybody for how they came through the trauma of their experience. Um, some folks did that through finding um, what they were going to do on the other side with their survival and others turned it, you know, really it, it broke them and there is no right way to, you can't judge that. I think that in the Jewish community, what we try to do, because that holiday I described, Passover, is all about the children being able to ask questions and being able to ask hard questions, but the parents have a responsibility to answer that question. And what you do in that holiday specifically is um, the kids have to, we see ourselves as though we ourselves were liberated. There's a whole nother holiday from the exile from, um, from, from Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, where we sit in... Um, on the ground and we lament and we weep. I mean, that's also part of the story of exile. So these stories are not stories of the past, they're the stories of the present. You know, I always comment again, quoting um, quoting an author that, um, you know, there's no word in Judaism for history. The, the word we have is memory. And so I, I think that that's how we do this. So what do you do with your memories? They're, they're alive and they're, they're active and they're, they're animating. They carve our souls to who we are. So as that relates to, and I'm happy to talk theologically about that to the degree that's interesting to folks, but that's how we find meaning in this. And that then leads to the concept of, um, of, of welcoming the guest or welcoming the stranger, right? I mean, it's these, that's how it becomes, that's how it moves from just an interesting idea to um, a theological or moral obligation, if that makes sense. And so for, for us and for me very personally, you know, looking at what's happened in Afghanistan since the Taliban's taken back over, um, I can't not see what happened to the Jewish community throughout history and, and more recently, you know, in, in the Holocaust, where people in our country could have done something and didn't. And the sadness about all, you know, Nila and Tom, these are not old. This isn't new. It's the same thing. This goes back thousands of years. It's not even new in the history of the American experience. This goes back long before that. And there are always people that that peddle in xenophobia. It's easy. It's, it's easy to, to not sort of look at what's our responsibility and to just want to turn the page. So what I'm, I can't help but see here is what would have happened if there were more people um, during World War II had stood up and spoke out and really um, tried to do something. And so for, for, for me, and I, to the degree that I represent the Jewish community in this particular moment, you know, I am using every every single resource I have, every contact I have, specifically to try to help get people out of Afghanistan. Because I, I actually don't really like the term refugee as it relates to the people we're trying to get out of Afghanistan, because these are people that are whose lives are at risk because they served with coalition forces because of their service to our country. That's why they're being targeted. The people that we're working with, and I'm literally getting text messages and voice messages and very, very, very actively in touch. These are folks that are in hiding and moving night after night to a different house because they're being hunted and they're being hunted because of their service to this country. So to me, when you say refugee, it gives the concept as though we are doing some form of kindness to help 
um, those people that we as a country left behind. And, and I think that's, that's not honest because I think in this instance, this goes back to why I say we have an obligation. It's about who we are as a country. And you could take this in a very political standpoint and say, look, you know, if you want allies anywhere else on the planet, you know, that are going to protect our troops, you're telling them what to expect by leaving people behind and leaving good luck. You know, we didn't get you out. Sorry. You know, that's, that's irresponsible on so many levels, but for me, it's morally irresponsible. And, and again, I could talk at length about this, but we have, we cannot just wipe our hands clean of this. We cannot wait until we have all of the paperwork filled out correctly. You, you can't in this instance, give an answer. We're working on it and have that answer be acceptable because we're working on it can go on for decades. And we're dealing with a situation with, with the folks that are there. And some of these are family members of our own staff. You can't say that to people when they're running out of money because they were told to go to Kabul because they're going to be evacuated there. You can't do that to people who are are really um, with children trying to hide and and at risk and their children are at risk. I mean, you just that doesn't work. We we have we fully have it in the capacity of our country to help get these folks out and to address this crisis in a meaningful an expedited way. It is just not, I am not convinced that enough people in power have the will to do it. And so from where I'm standing at is I'm, again, using all of the resources I have access to. Well, I'll just add, you're absolutely right on that. And the reality on the ground, the reports we've been hearing of what we're putting people through, the the, the hurdles, the loops, the obstacles, and ultimately nobody has answers for them. People who are desperate, who are hiding in different places every night. Uh, I mean, this is the reality on the ground for them. And you're right. These are not people that are asking for a handout. These are people we promise to protect and provide refuge to if they worked and helped us. And in certain instances, not only did they uh, risk their own safety and well-being, but also that of their entire family uh, in order to help and in some cases even save U.S. lives, uh, uh, lives of U.S. troops and soldiers. And this is partly why there is such a strong push right now by veterans, by private individuals who are stepping up and being involved in trying to help with the evacuation efforts because they recognize how appalling our behavior was to abandon the very allies who stood next to them shoulder to shoulder in saving their lives. And I would add that I think one of the, the motivators for some of the volunteers for Vietz for Afghans is looking at our own community's experience just because the U.S. decided to leave and, and that its involvement in the Vietnam War in 1975 does not mean that people stopped trying to get out. And the, the fleeing continued on foot, um, on land, by sea, um, people risked their lives and countless people died, were pillaged, raped, um, risked everything in order to get out over the next 20 plus years. And we still have refugees from the Vietnam era. So I, I just hope that people remember that, that U.S. policymakers may not want to deal with this or expedite the process of getting people out. But um, if they don't do something, if we don't speak up more, we are going to see more re history repeat itself. People are going to get killed and die and do horrific things in order to try to find something better than what they have right now. For those of us who are, you know, here in the U.S. who are appalled by by what's happened, um, what can we do? Is it is it just about writing letters to our elected officials? Is it about spreading the word on social media, or is there something that that can be more impactful? I think, like, um, if I could share, we've been trying to figure this out. Like, what can for for our little organization as a Vietnamese community, how can we mobilize as many Vietnamese people as possible who feel a connection to what's happening in Afghanistan? How can we galvanize them to help? And, and we have tried to emphasize it's important to listen to what the people who have direct interactions with refugees, what are they saying? So that means what are the resettlement agencies telling us they need? What is the Afghan community telling us they need? And right now the need is so 
we're trying to make sense of, and Anila and Will, if you can help me understand this a little better, that'd be awesome. But we're trying to, the issue is so overwhelming because um, the decimation of our refugee system, the resettlement system over the last few years, it sounds like a lot of agencies are trying to recover from that and trying to ramp up very fast. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, we want to help the resettlement agencies. And if that means telling people to please continue volunteering, please continue writing, please continue giving, um, be patient because the agencies are trying to rebuild after a period of, um, I think, a lot of loss. Um, I think that's one thing, you know, that's one way that we can try and help. But we've also, um, to us, it's like seeing that the Afghan community here locally has two different, there are two different emergency funds um, that are underway. And the proceeds from that would help um, to resettle refugees long after that initial three-month case management period ends. And so if we can help to get the word out about that, we will. Um, if the agencies are asking for help with pickups at the airport, if they're asking for help with finding housing, you know, there's something for everybody to do at every level, it seems, um, whether we're helping those who are here already, those who are on their way here, or those who are still stuck in Afghanistan. So there seems to be a whole spectrum um, of action items that 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 can be taken. Um, but yeah. Thank you for that, Tan. I can try to help guide people in terms of exactly what to do on all of those categories that you mentioned. Um, uh, first off, I will say that there is a link that we have. Uh, it's tinyurl backslash AFG advocacy. And if you go to that, uh, that is a list of different action calls, petitions, letters, alerts that folks can individually sign on to raise awareness about what's happening, to contact their members of Congress, uh, to write letters to the Biden administration, and calling for some of what the Afghan American community and other Americans have been calling for, including safe evacuation for vulnerable at-risk Afghans uh, in Afghanistan, uh, humanitarian aid as well to Afghanistan, not to the Taliban, but specifically to, uh, to trusted NGOs, uh, to some of the policy changes that need to happen with respect to the, the way some of the Afghans are arriving here. Uh, it's through something called humanitarian parole, because of the speed of the evacuation and how quickly folks had to evacuate. They do not have the time. They did not have the time. They do not have the time to wait the years that it could take if you process a special immigrant visa or P1 or P2 or follow some of those traditional refugee routes. So there's a lot of different ways people can take action through that uh, advocacy front. In addition to that, um, and I'll, I'll point out a couple of things on the advocacy too, there's currently the continuing resolution uh, that's being considered in Congress specifically has a provisions uh, that we support, including things like ensuring that those individuals who show up under the humanitarian parole category uh, also get the same refugee benefits as traditional refugees under the resettlement program. So I think that's really critical. We don't need to create two separate classes of refugees and those who didn't have the time because they had to evacuate so quickly, given the danger they were in, they should not be penalized uh, uh, and, and not receive the benefits that can help set them up for success here. So I think all of that is important. There's also uh, a welcomed act. It's called welcomed act. It's a bipartisan bill uh, to do the same to ensure that humanitarian parolees get the same kinds of benefits as uh, traditional refugees. Um, and there's more. There's ways to help with trying to waive the, the cost prohibitive $575 per person uh, application fee for humanitarian parole. So the people that we put in danger in Afghanistan, we should not force them each to pay $575. $175 in fees just to be considered for evacuation. Uh, and for folks, just to give you a sense of what that means, I have 26 family members that I'm trying to evacuate. That's about $15,000 that I have to spend just in fees alone uh, for them to even be considered for potentially uh, having a way out uh, to, to have their lives saved. So people can help sponsor some of those fees. They can sign up as financial sponsors, which is something else that anybody applying for humanitarian parole, they need financial 
potential sponsors as well. So those are some of the advocacy and specific ways. But putting that aside, what we have here in Washington State for folks, it's a way to sort of tap into the network that we're trying to set up to help with the incoming refugees, the incoming families who arrive here, the uh, whether as humanitarian parolees or otherwise. We have a Google form, which is our central intake form. It's tinyurl backslash wa help Afghans. And folks who sign up on that can identify specifically what they can volunteer for, what services they can provide, what goods they can offer, what advocacy they want to get involved in. And then we've been following up uh, every two to three weeks, sending sort of a comprehensive email with different ways of action, uh, updates, resources, and more. But then also whenever the volunteer needs arise, uh, they've been getting emails based on the category individuals choose. Uh, and that's that's one way that we would definitely recommend anybody who wants to help in Washington State to sign up on that Google form so they can be connected with our network. We have well over a thousand people who have signed up. So please be patient, especially if you identify individual ways or specific ways you can help. But what we're trying to do is provide some kind of support directly for some of the service providers and resettlement agencies who may need assistance. Uh, and we're also putting together like welcome kits, hygiene kits, uh, a refugee book, a resource booklet. Uh, we have welcome signs and more. So we really hope folks sign up on the Google form. And then third, there is a campaign, uh, a joint campaign between a number of different organizations uh, to raise emergency funds to help the incoming Afghan families. 100% of those fees go direct, or those donations that we receive go directly to the Afghan refugees. None of it is for overhead, staff time, or anything else like that. And it's intended specifically for the folks who might not get the assistance from the resettlement agencies or might not get it as long as they need, uh, given the limitations that the resettlement agencies have as well. So this is joint money that we're raising as emergency funds. Sometimes you only get 24 to 48 hours notice when a family is coming in and they might immediately need something. And we want to make sure we have the funds and the community support to step up and help at that time. So a lot to talk about the resettlement process itself. Um, but the things that, that I'm really, we are really focused on and I'm really focused on these days is um, I think we need to have a point person uh, that reports to the White House and is on the National Security Council. And that person's job must be to oversee the evacuation of um, our allies that were left behind in Afghanistan. I think that, um, and if you want to know what you could do, that's going to require political pressure across the country. So everybody who has senators, specifically senators who are in foreign relations and armed services, um, foreign services, armed services, those are the, the folks that really need to focus on. Those the person responsible to the White House needs to be um, managing this this point person um, at the White House needs to really manage all of the all of these efforts on a whole. And it must be, again, on at the highest level. It can't just be a, uh, a token czar or token person. There needs to be someone at the State Department who is managing all the diplomatic efforts. We've cut off all relationships with the Taliban, which means we need to use um, Qatar, we need to use Turkey, we need to use other um, other intermediaries to help us. And that means that we need to have people who have the ability to fly people out of Afghanistan in international flights, which means there needs to be somebody who can run those control towers, which has to be someone that comes from um, one of these other countries that has those kind of uh, relationships. So that's very concretely. And then I think the United States needs to actually get um, resources. If we're not going to fly people out on U.S. flights, which we're obviously not, then we need to sponsor these other charter flights to get out. And we need to eliminate all the bar barriers that have been put up to keep them from getting out. So I think, again, this is... Um, very concretely some of the things we need to do. The other thing that needs to happen is there's a, a tremendous amount of rumor and, um, and, and fiction being spread um, because when people are in hiding, they don't have access to information. And so what happens is, you know, all of the organizations that are working with people on the ground don't know what's fact and what's fiction. Even the politicians in the United States don't know what's fact and what's fiction from what's happening on the ground. We need to actually have concrete information telling us what is actually happening, what's true, what can we share that's real information? Because otherwise, you just elevate fear. And any of any of us, and that I think is all of us on this call who've had family who've been in hiding, know exactly what that's like. 
you know, you can, there's plenty of literature that talks about what it, you know, the, how, how stories and rumors gets passed on. So I think that that's another thing. We need to know what's fact and what's fiction. Another thing is if there's a website that basically if you're if we're trying to get somebody out, we have no idea where they are in the process. We don't know whether or not the person is cleared or if they're, if they're never going to get out. So we need, a, we need a concrete way to understand where are the people in the process for clearance to come into our country. I think what you said is also so it's triggering like a memory, um, you know, a lesson. It's like and we've done this uh, when you look at the Vietnamese experience, you know, it took several years. But um, many of America's allies ended up in re-education camps and many of them were in there for many, many years. Toward the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, you had figures like John Kerry and John McCain coming together in a bipartisan fashion, people with social capital, political capital, with the authority and the power in order to create these orderly departure programs that were the reason why many of these people who did stay, who did suffer, were in prison for many years, were able to come to the United States by the 90s. Um, and that was how. It shouldn't take that long, though. That took a good 10 plus years in order it for- It can't take that long here. It can't take that long. They, these people, they don't have the time. You know, again, you could talk about what happened in those re-education camps. It's it's not like a refugee camp. That's not what the Taliban is setting up for these people. They're they're hunting them. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, it's just it just uh, it just brings to mind we've done this before in the past. It took ten plus years in order to get there. And you're right, we don't have that kind of time right now. There should be the political will to get this done. I would just add that we had twenty years to figure this out. The fact that we didn't have a point person on evacuation, the fact that we did abandon the Afghan people in the way that we did on our hasty withdrawal. I'm I'm entirely against our military industrial complex. I'm against the invasion of foreign lands and do not support the, uh, uh, the, the waste of resources, our tax dollars going to defense contractors. And you can oppose all of that and be happy that there's an end to the war in Afghanistan and yet still should be condemning in the harshest terms the way that this withdrawal was executed and the the continuing uh, trauma and terrible situation that we've left the Afghan people in where they are facing exactly what Will was talking about on the ground there every single day is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm every day checking to make sure my family is safe and okay. And that's so many different Afghans and Afghan-Americans and other Americans who are involved in this effort. It is traumatizing. It has been a horrible and an appalling situation. And it's it's it shows a callous disregard for the lives and safety and well-being of the very people we promise to protect. So is the action for any kind of any person who wants to help, is the action here, like to your senator and to your House of Representatives, write to them and tell them that you're paying attention, you care about this issue. Like, how do we get to that point where? I would say, so what I would say is, uh, thank God, frankly, I'd say um, our local delegation has been extraordinary. I'd call out Senator Cantwell specifically, who from the moment I started saying, hey, we, this is a crisis we need to get on it. She's been exceedingly helpful. Her, her team have been amazing. Senator Murray's team has been amazing in that way. The Congressman Smith's team has been amazing in this way. They have been very, 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 very active in supporting what we're doing. What I'm wondering about, so one, I think congratulate, thank them, hugely important. On the other hand, I think we also need to go across the country to other other folks, um, if you have communities in other parts of the country, we need to activate them as well to do the same thing. Because it's not, it's it's awesome that our Washington state delegation is, is that involved, but it's 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 not sufficient, if that makes sense. So if I were to say what I would encourage, I would I would encourage that. Yeah, I would just add Congresswoman Jaya Paul has been a huge champion and advocate as well. And she, in fact, uh, was the only co-sponsor of the Welcomed Act. That's something that should change immediately. Every single Washington delegation member should be signed on to co-sponsor the Welcomed Act. And that's in the action alerts that I included in that advocacy uh, link. That's definitely there that we can let our members of Congress know not only do we care, not only do we want the things that Will was talking about, but also uh, things like the Welcomed Act, things like uh, the 
uh, support for the uh, provisions in the continuing resolution uh, and also the, the safe evacuation process. We really need answers. And what's been so frustrating is even our own members of Congress cannot provide and cannot get answers from the Department of State. So whatever pressure we can put on here from Washington or across the nation is really critical right now. Thank you all for adding such specificity to that question and, and the, the broad range of things that folks can do. Um, again, we'll be including links to all the things that our guests have mentioned so that you can follow up and take action. Um, I did want to ask, just going back to the folks who do make it to the U.S., who do make it to the Seattle region, um, is there an opportunity for people here to host families, or is that something that is still being worked out? Um, I, I recognize that it needs to be a specific type of individual or family that's able to host based on what kind of accommodations they have. Um, but, but I think a lot of people are wondering, hey, could I be someone who's able to actually, you know, directly help by hosting an Afghan family? And I'm wondering if you could speak to that just a little bit. Amila, well, you you might be able to. I'll just say that, like, we initially, um, Vietz for Afghans was looking for host families. We wanted to find host families. People definitely stepped up and said that they wanted to help. And then all we could do was really refer them to the resettlement agencies and ask them to go through the application process in order to do that. But it sounds like there's a range of needs. Um, there is a need for temporary housing, but there's also a need for long range affordable housing as well. And clearly we have a supply issue in this particular area. And so we as a project are trying to figure out where do we fit in and where can we help with supply here? That's uh, an ongoing question for us. But Anila and Will, if you have any insights on, on what the, I'm very curious about that question as well. <laughs> Yeah, housing is a huge need. Uh, in the Google form that folks can fill out, housing is one of the options. And uh, Afghan Health Initiative directly had also collected names of uh, families of individuals who are willing to provide short-term uh, temporary housing on an emergency basis to those families that are coming in. Uh, and what they've been doing is connecting those individuals with the resettlement agencies so they can go through whatever background checks or processing they have to do before they're able to use those uh, those housing options that are offered. Uh, but that's something that I'm also working with at a statewide level with the statewide refugee coordinator, Sarah Peterson. We're actually creating a working group specifically on housing because that's in such short supply, as you said, Tan. So it's definitely something that we want to get uh, more opportunities for folks uh, to, to provide if they can, but really focusing at a broader level of how do we address the significant need of a shortage of housing uh, specifically on a long-term basis, because so long as you don't have long-term housing, uh, you can't get your school started, you can't get any of the other things uh, in place to set yourself up for success uh, without that being addressed first. So part of the, the work that we're doing at a statewide level is these different working groups, and one of them will specifically be on housing. But for folks for now, at least, uh, if, if you don't have another place to go to or some of the resettlement agencies specifically, you can certainly identify the, the support that you want to provide for housing in the Google form uh, that we are using? I would just say to add to that, um, there's the temporary housing in the immediate state when somebody arrives and then um, until their apartment, it can be found and, and updated. But what I would say is um, we try to keep communities where the communities live. And it's not um, it's not out of disrespect to the to the gratitude to the generosity of somebody for um, opening up their home. It's that we're really trying to keep communities together because it, it's very hard to be resettled into a foreign land when you don't speak the language, you don't know any of the customs, and you're completely isolated. And so our hope is as quickly as possible to get people to into their community so that they actually have, again, that, that concept of cultural um, competency is, is very critical to how we do our work. Um, so, you know, we really work very, we have several Afghan folks on our staff that are really doing, um, doing the, the, the heavy lifting of trying to work with um, apartment owners and, and trying to get people um, into their homes. All right. Um, those are all the questions I had planned. Is there anything else that you all would like to, to plug just before we wrap this up? 
one thing that I would say, both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations have always, uh, the average number of refugees that we've brought into our country was 85,000. Over the past bunch of years, that number plummeted about less than 15,000. Um, I think there are 60 million displaced people on our, on our planet, which is about the size of the country of France in terms of population. Um, this is one critical, critically important group of people that we're talking about here, but we need to keep in mind that this is uh, uh, just part of a much, much bigger story that, that needs to be told. And my final comment would be, um, we utterly cannot turn the page on the people we left behind until they have been evacuated. And so my request is we have to keep telling the story until people start listening. I will just add that uh, despite how difficult and uh, traumatic the past several weeks have been for me personally and for the Afghan and Afghan American communities collectively, along with so many others, uh, one thing that gives me hope and inspiration is the support from individuals, from organizations, from communities really stepping up and wanting to help. And uh, I wrote an op-ed where I talked about how we as a superpower abandoned, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the the Afghan people in a lot of ways. Uh, but I really hope and believe in we the people, you know, people like on this call and so many others uh, who are listening to this podcast. Uh, hopefully we can be the superpower that really steps up and saves uh, the Afghan people during this time of crisis and need and helping be part of a narrative of welcoming. We, in fact, created these welcome signs that will also be shared with the folks who are on that Google form. So if nothing else, if people can put up these welcome signs on their windows, in their homes, in their businesses, to really create that narrative of welcoming and inclusivity at a time when we know we're going to be seeing an increase in xenophobia, that also is going to be a powerful way to really live out our values. And I would just add that um, for those who are listening, local listeners here in the Seattle area in Washington State, um, we really should be proud of our, um, I think, our own history and our own legacy of helping refugees um, on behalf of the Vietnamese community. Thank you to everyone who welcomed our community here in 1975 forward. And um, we want to continue. We really want to continue that tradition. And we need people to step up and help us out um, in order to keep it going. So it's a special legacy. Let's let's keep it. Thank you. And thank you to all three of you for taking the time to be with us today, to share your stories, to open yourselves up and, and share the important work you're doing. Um, and Anila, we wish all the best to your family still in Afghanistan. And I hope all of you take care and, and um, you know, get some time to get some rest and take care of yourselves because it sounds like this is something that we'll be dealing with for quite a while. So thank you for your steadfastness in that. Um, and thank you to Big Phony for letting us use their music royalty free. That's who you will hear on the intro and outro of this out of this uh, podcast episode. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Um, I'll leave you with the "We Belong Here" tagline: Build bridges and remember that we all belong here. See you next time. <laughs>